You are listening to the Murray Hills Church Podcast. To learn more about Murray Hills Church, including our gathering times and how to connect with us, visit us online at murrayhills.com. How's everybody doing? I heard great. That's good. That's very good. So, this is my guitar today. That wasn't funny. Um, I don't know about you, but spending the past several weeks in the book of Matthew, um, studying the Sermon on the Mount has been... And kids, you're dismissed, by the way. (laughs) Sorry. It has been, um, it's been really good for me. I I don't know about you, but it's been really good for me. It's been good for my mind. It's been good for my heart. It's helped me um, examine the why behind a lot of the things that I do and how I operate. Um, It's been a gift, I think, to spend so long in the scriptures this way. Um, And it's been a gift to get to do it with so many of you here in person. And if you're at home online, that's cool. But uh, being in the room with people has been so fantastic. Um, And so I'm so grateful for that. But not only am I grateful to um, be able to receive from this teaching, but that Russ would invite me to share um, some of my reflections on the Sermon on the Mount Um, I've been looking forward to it for a long time. If you have your scripture, would you go ahead and turn to Matthew 7? If you're new to the Bible, Matthew's the the first book in the New Testament. If you have a physical Bible, maybe like two-thirds of the way through it. But we're going to be spending a lot of time in Matthew 7 here in just a few minutes. And you might be linking up with us for the first time in this series, and if so, that's cool. Um, You know, we've we're, we're on the back end of it. We've got just a few more weeks left of it. Um, but all kinds of ideas in this section of Scripture, one of the most popular sections of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, all of these ideas were just game changers that Jesus continually shared. Um, there are all kinds of ideas shared that undoubtedly were, were bonkers to the listener. And they were ideas that completely reversed the, the concept of what religion and kingdom living looks like. Uh, for example, like accountability for anger was elevated and put on like the same plane as, as murder. Uh, lust was put on the same level as adultery. Uh, we were taught by Jesus to love our enemies, those in opposition with us, and, and, and to pray, even pray for the people uh, that mistreat us. And then, you know, in, in, in chapter 6, Jesus raises the stakes even higher by, by challenging the listener to examine their own hearts and consider the why of how they live and, and how they operate as people of God. How are you giving? Why do you give? Is it for other people to notice you? Is it so that you might get a pat on the back? How do you pray? When do you pray? Do you pray at all? Do you think you'll be heard for all the many things that you say? What about fasting? Do you fast and and make a spectacle of yourself and let other people know that you're fasting so that you might be seen? Why do you do these things? Chapter 7 is where we're at this morning. And and chapter 7... It kicks off 
with a more with more inward examination as he urges us to reconsider the way in which we view those around us, but then to examine how we treat those people. Take a look with me, uh, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Ah. Okay, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. February 2021 uh, was a very historical month. It's been a historical year. A lot of stuff has happened. We're only in June, and a lot of stuff has happened. But I'm thinking specifically of, of February of this year, and it was, it was, it was pivotal for a lot of people, you may not have known about this, but specifically for my generation, this was like a really big deal. Yes, millennials and worship leaders alike throughout the country fell into a state of crisis upon learning that via TikTok, Generation Z had vehemently denounced the once popular staple of American fashion, the skinny jean. I'm not going to judge anybody in the house that's wearing skinny jeans today. Hey, you do you. That's fine. Wear skinny jeans. But, yes, skinny jeans, this, this long run of popularity for, for over a decade, were, were now being abandoned by a cohort of, of, of 20-year-old tastemakers who just decided on a whim, this isn't cool anymore, we're going to separate ourselves. So, you know, they, they started, like, burning their skinny jeans on TikTok or or tearing them to shreds, or the more resourceful ones were were repurposing them for other things. But the bottom line was that this group of people, born no sooner than the year 1996, declared that skinny jeans were no longer cool, and millennials felt a collective irrelevancy in mass. I'm not here to comment on whether or not I think they're cool. I'm not the authority on it, and and I also don't really care. Um, But I'm telling you this to say that it's interesting that we allow people, we allow our identity, rather, to be shaped by what we perceive others to believe about us. Henry Nouwen um, really, really, really beautiful thinker. Um, he's a Christianity, spirituality writer. Um, he teaches that there are three human lies that we often believe about our identity and that we also project onto other people. And I think they're very interesting. The first one is, I am what I have. I am what I have. I, all of the things that I have, the clothing that I wear, the car that I drive, the home that I live in, the vacations that I go on, the things that I know, my knowledge, 
even my educational pedigree. I am the accumulation of all of these things. Another one is, I am what I do. How many of us can meet a person for the first time without one of us in the first 30 seconds saying, well, what do you do for a living? It's ingrained in who we are. And then number three, I am what other people say or think about me. So we have this idea given to us by other people of who we are and we operate thusly. We succumb to these lies and, and, and thus very strategically shape our lives to look a certain way because of how we wish to be perceived by others. Our clothing, our, our bodies, our jobs, our politics, where we vacation, where our kids go to school, even our spirituality or the lack thereof, it's all subject to critique. And, and by presenting ourselves in a certain way, we trick ourselves into believing that we somewhat control the narrative. Judge not, Jesus said, that you be not judged. You see, Jesus, he gives us a heads up. It's like he's saying, look, everyone around you, they're living their life the very best that they know how. It may not look like it to you when you cross-reference it with whatever standard you hold, but hey, it's not up to you. Can you see that? Of course not. You can't see it because you've got this log lodged in your eye. You can't see the value that I've placed in the people around you. It's like he's saying, man, think about the way that you're treating people, the way that you think about people, the way you talk to people, the way you talk about people. They're just as much mine as you are. The way you judge others, that's the way you'll be judged. Man, we don't like talking about things like that. That's a hard teaching where Jesus says the way you judge other people, the way you view other people, that's the way you're going to be judged. We don't like, it doesn't feel good to think that there might be consequences for the way we operate and even the way that we think. It doesn't feel good. By casting judgment on other people though, we're in effect trying to hold power that we were not made to, to wield. Jesus he taught about judgment in Matthew chapter 7, but he encountered it face to face throughout the duration of his ministry. I'm sure any one of you could probably think of at least one example. But man, the one that sticks out to me the most right now as I'm preparing, as I've prepared for this, is from John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and maybe some of you have heard this story before. Maybe some of you haven't. And, and God, in this moment, I just pray for the hearts who haven't heard this story or maybe need to hear it again. John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know specifically what, what this woman's story was, but maybe she had been caught in the act. Maybe there was rumors circulating that she had been in adultery. What blows my mind is that the person she might have been in an adulterous relationship with might have been there in the room unscathed. And they placed them in the midst. They placed her in the midst. Verse 4, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Just a side note, uh, Abby pointed this out to me last night, that these people are already kind of like superimposing the, that list that I shared with you just a moment ago from now. And these, they're literally judging this woman based on the lies. Verse 6 after they said, what, are we, what do you say? Should we stone her? Verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And this is great. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. A lot of people have said maybe he's ADHD. I don't know. Maybe he just, you know, he, he just, he's just playing. He's writing something spe special down on the ground. Me, I just think he doesn't want to deal with it. Like, it's like me. I'm just like, oh, this conflict. Ah, just, I don't want to do it. And Jesus, he bends down, he starts riding on the ground, and they keep badgering him. They, they, they continue to ask. And he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down on and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. This, this story, I feel, speaks for itself so clearly. So there isn't a lot of time to dissect it right now. But the point is, judgment is not ours to make. None of this is ours to hold. Who is righteous among us? Romans chapter 3 says, none are righteous. No, not one. Yet in our presumed self-righteousness, we often try to occupy a space that doesn't belong to us. It's like, it's like we're squatting in a house whose, 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 note we could, whose price we could never afford, but we insist on being there anyway. Romans 2 Romans 2 is crazy. It teaches that this space belongs to God and God alone. Romans 2, it says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's saying, you have no right to call anyone out on anything because every last one of you is dealing with something. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are, storing up, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
I'm 34. It sounds like I'm going through puberty, by the way. My voice will crack. You know, this text is saying there, there is no excuse for passing judgment on another person, yet it's, it's normalized. It's something that's part of the fabric of culture. It's what we do. It's been made so possible for us to do that. We're all guilty of it, yet we're all guilty of something, which is what the writer is, is pointing out. We don't have space to do it. God in his kindness, he points out in Romans though, is his kindness allows us to carry on so that we might eventually turn to him. We're called to deal with our own hearts and stop trying to manage other people. Our place is not the seat of judgment. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we all just dealt with ourselves Is that not a, just a, a crazy thought? What if we just dealt with ourselves? What would that be like? And I say that as if it's a new concept, yet we just read, we just heard the red letters of Jesus Christ where he said, Hey, you've got a log lodged in your eye. You're trying to pull sawdust out of the person standing across from you. Every last one of us is guilty of something. So rather than nitpicking others, we began, what if we began dealing with our own sin? What if we began sorting through our own shame, wrestling with our doubts personally, working through our fears? Renowned author, um, speaker, researcher, uh, Brene Brown, indicates something that I think sounds a whole lot like grace which is the polar opposite of judging someone else. Brene Brown, um, she shares that while researching compassion, she and her team interviewed uh, a large group of clergy in the state of Texas. And they had a set of questions that they asked, and, and the first question they asked was, This one, do you, are people rather, are people doing the best they can? And she said they had a 50-50 split when they asked that question. 50% of people said, yeah, I think people are doing the best they can. The other 50, polar opposite, absolutely not. People stink. They're terrible. They're not doing the best they can. These were clergy, by the way. They're not doing the best they can. And so she admitted, and I feel this way this, also, like, she admitted that she kind of lives in that camp of, I also kind of bend that way. Like, I, I don't feel like a lot of the time people are doing the very best they can. And then she said she had a moment with a friend where it kind of shifted her perspective. You see, she was going uh, to a concert with her friend, and they're riding along in the car, and she just thought she'd have some fun and ask her friend the same question. Are people doing the best they can? And her friend said, no way. They are not doing the best they can. And I'll tell you why. And this is, this is uh, interesting. Let me tell you why. She said, because 
you know, what about these moms who decide to have a baby and then all of a sudden decide, well, I don't want to breastfeed anymore. I don't want to breastfeed anymore. I don't like to pump. Um, I have an infection. I have to go back to work. I just really don't like doing it. It's an inconvenience. And Brene Brown is listening to this person rattle off about breastfeeding mothers all the while she's going, yeah, uh-huh, okay, yeah, uh-huh. And then she's thinking to herself, oh, my goodness, that's me. I stopped breastfeeding after five months, she said. She said she stopped breastfeeding after five months because she had to go back to work because she was doing the best she could do. She said later she goes home and she talks to her husband about it. She asked him the same question, are people doing the best they can? And she said he went away for about 15 minutes and then came back. And this, man, this is awesome. He went away, he came back, and he said, I think I have an answer. I have no idea if people are doing the best they can. But I do know my life is a whole lot better when I assume that they are. That sounds like grace to me. That's beautiful. That's amazing. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is is a magnificent yet costly gift given freely to us. The churchy definition of grace is unmerited favor. But very simply, that's just assuming that the person you're looking at is spectacular without knowing the first thing about him or her. Solely for the fact that they are God's handiwork made by him known by him, loved by him, and thus they deserve every ounce of compassion and goodness and grace from you, a kingdom person. Grace is beautiful, yet costly and very difficult to implement. Carl Rogers great thinker in the field of mental health counseling. Um, Out of his research, he formed what's known as the the humanistic approach to counseling. And I'm not going to get into the weeds, but what stands out to me most about Carl Rogers from my training as a counselor, what I remember most about him is a term that he dubbed called unconditional positive Regard. Has anybody heard of that before? Unconditional, positive regard. Rogers, he taught that nothing a person says, nothing a person does should make you, the person on the other end of the table, stop seeing the individual as less human or less lovable. And with compassion, we choose to see the other person as more than the behavior 
that you see them manifesting in the moment. I love Carl Rogers. He, he treated other people Backstreet Boy style. You know, like, I don't care who you are, what you've done, where you've been. That wasn't funny. Grace is, man, did you see that? He's amazing. Grace is, she is doing the very best that she can do. Carl Rogers, he also, I love this so much. He illustrated it this way. This is, this is the picture he gives. He says, people are just as wonderful as sunsets if you let them be. Just as wonderful as sunsets if you let them be. When I look at a sunset, I don't find myself saying, ah, soften the orange a bit on the right-hand corner. I don't try to control a sunset. I watch with awe as it unfolds. By default, the world makes judgments. The world They don't see a sunset when they see people. The world sees sawdust. The world sees imperfection. The world sees hurt. But where the world sees sawdust, kingdom people see a sunset (laughs) by God's own grace. He showed us how to notice a sunset. Jesus, he saw the sunset in the woman caught in adultery that we just read about moments ago when everybody was ready to stone her to death. Jesus saw sunset in Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was a social outcast and dubbed a thief. He saw sunset in a woman who broke a costly jar of perfume and anointed him when others called her wasteful. He saw sunset in the paralytic lowered through the roof of another person's home in the midst of people who wouldn't touch him for he was unclean. He saw sunset in Nicodemus who sought the wisdom of Jesus by night in private for he was a Pharisee. He saw the sunset in the eyes of the thief nailed to the cross directly next to him. He sees sunset in the single moms. He sees sunset in the addict. He sees sunset in the depressed, in the lonely, in the troubled. He sees sunset in you. You are worthy. You are worthy of grace. You are worthy of love and forgiveness and relationship with him. Man, I love this church. Oh, this is not scripted. I just want to say, first and foremost, I love this church, man. Does anybody else love this church? This is such a great place. Oh, my goodness. Now, the slogan when I came here was where judgment ends and healing begins. And I'm like, I I remember thinking, man, that's kind of weird. That sounds weird. Why would anybody judge me? You know, why, why would they even need to say that? You know, that was weird for me. 
But I loved hearing from, from Russ on the purpose behind that. Man, we are a grace-oriented church, and I believe that wholeheartedly. It doesn't matter who you are. We'll love you Backstreet Boys style. We'll love you for who you are. And I think that's fantastic because that is a reflection of who Jesus is. And maybe you need to know that today. Man, when we learn, maybe when we learn to actually receive the grace freely given to us, will learn to freely give grace to others. You know, I think, I think our judgment and our default mode of judging others is because we're so hard on ourselves. I don't know, maybe you don't agree, but I, I feel this way. The moments where I'm most critical of someone else, the moments where I'm like, can you believe the way that person played that song? It was terrible. Because I'm standing here in my own doubt, in my own struggle, and I'm being hard on myself, and I'm down on myself. And I'm not showing myself some grace. Man, you have the right to do that because God already gave it to you. He says you are good, so be good. Maybe when we learn to actually receive the grace freely given to us, we'll learn to freely give grace to other people. And that's what kingdom living is. That's the kind of kingdom I want to live in. That's a different kind of kingdom. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. Thank you for their earnest desire to serve you, to worship you, to be with you, to have relationship with you. And I pray, God, for the people in this space who struggle so hard with who they are, who they perceive they are. They struggle with, I don't have enough, or I don't know enough, I don't do enough. And I pray that you would help them. And Father, I pray that today, together as, as a church, we would fix our eyes on you and be recipients of the grace that you've so freely imparted to us. Thank you, God. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Help us to turn away from the desire to judge others based on our own finite standards. Help us. Just give us your eyes, Lord. Help us to be a people of grace. Help us to notice the sunset in the eyes of everyone we encounter. You are good. And I am thankful for the chance to share from your word today. I love you, Lord. Amen. Man, it's been a good Sunday. And I'm so thankful that you came today. And I want you to remember one thing. June 20th is Father's Day. Have you guys gotten your dads anything? You can get him a plate of barbecue, and a vaccine. <laughs> Y'all have a great week. Love you. 
If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.